you will turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Our sermon this morning is entitled, A Brood of Vipers. Quite the Mother's Day title. (laughs) Just thought of that. Our text is Luke chapter 3. We will be looking at verses 1 through 14. Our keywords for our worshipers and training are repentance, fruit, and forgiveness. Now, I do a lot of reading and listening. And I think the more I read and the more I hear and the more I understand about the condition of the evangelical church in our nation the more I'm convinced that there is a great need for more clear voices in the wilderness, calling on all who profess faith in Christ to truly examine whether or not they actually even understand what the gospel they say they believe actually is. Truth be told, there are a lot of gospels that are preached But the majority of those who profess Christ in our land do not understand biblical Christianity. It's a sad indictment. And what makes it worse is that in these churches, there are many, many people who assume that they are at peace with God. They believe that eternally they will dwell with Christ. And when it is actually the case that they remain at enmity with God. And on the final day of judgment, he will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It is as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, assuming they know God, they in fact do not know God and are far from Him. They know and trust and love a God of their own making, all the while assuming that they have escaped the wrath that is yet to come. It is today very much as it was in the days of John the Baptist among the people of Israel. John, we will see, was he was sent to the Jewish people at a time when they were certain that no matter what, they were secure in God because of their Jewishness. Most of them adhered to all the outward forms of religion, But their hearts, their hearts were so far from God. They followed the religion of of a God of their own making, not of the God of scriptures. But they assumed otherwise. They assumed they were fine. It is a tragic place to be. I think we would do well to pay close attention to the call of John the Baptist this morning as we consider how to pray as we consider how God calls us to examine our own hearts and how he calls us to live as his people in the world. Let's begin Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So remember, Luke is writing as a historian and he's rooting all that he's about to write in a, an identifiable context. Historically, this, all that he's written here sets uh, the dating of, uh, of John's ministry sometime beginning between A.D. 27 and 29. He mentions several individuals here. One is Pontius Pilate, who was governor over Judea. A.D. 26 to 36. His reign was assigned by Herod the Great. Now the Herod that Luke mentions is Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. He became the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea upon the death of his father in 4 B.C. and he held office until A.D. 39. He ruled during the entire lifetime of Jesus over the territory in which Jesus mostly resided throughout his life. Now, he mentions these who are tetrarchs. A tetrarch is simply, uh, it was a technical uh, term for those who ruled over a fourth of a kingdom. But eventually it just became a a title for one who was more of a prince to to the king. So Luke tells us of Herod's brother, Philip. Philip ruled his tetrarchy, which was northeast of the Sea of Galilee, if you can think of where these things are in Israel. And a man of whom we know very little information named Lysanias, who Luke records was the tetrarch of Abilene. Luke also points to something of particular significance. Consider his audience to those who were Jewish readers and particularly to, uh, to Theophilus, of whom he was writing primarily. He names uh, those who, uh, the one who was the high priest at the time. Now, there is only one high priest at a time. And at this time, it was Caiaphas. Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law, and still exerted a great deal of influence. And so Luke mentions him because it was really as if Annas was ruling through his son-in-law. And in fact, we see in John chapter 18 and verse 13, when Jesus was arrested, who was the first person he was brought to? It wasn't the high priest of the time, Caiaphas. It was his father-in-law, Annas. So... Maybe these names don't mean a whole lot to us in terms of having a greater understanding, uh, but certainly it was very significant to the first readers of Luke's gospel, particularly his primary intended reader, Theophilus, who himself, it is, um, it is thought, may have been some sort of governmental authority. So Luke provides a wealth of information to help his readers grasp exactly what was going on during the time of his writing. If John came today, Luke would write something along the lines of being during the time of the presidency of Barack Obama with the governor, Nathan Deal, and on down the line he would give of all the local government. And that helps us to identify a lot in the setting. 
So for John the Baptist, the setting was that of a harsh political rule, a very legalistic and abusive religious rule. And Luke provides detailed historical cultural context that helps us to root all of that. When John's ministry began, historically, we have an understanding if we study all of those names and how they ruled exactly what was going on. Now, notice the second part of verse 2. Luke writes, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, this is the very same language that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the word of the prophets. So Luke's intention is to show us that John, in true prophetic form, just as all the previous prophets that the Jews had not heard from for over 400 years, John is now coming and he is bringing a prophetic word directly from God. So Luke is saying John, the son of Zechariah, was a prophet and his ministry began at this specific time in this specific place. And he makes clear that all that he wrote previously about the word of the angel Gabriel coming to John's father, Zechariah, is now coming to pass in John's adult life. So remember, the end of chapter 1 in verse 80, Luke leaves John in the wilderness as he goes on to talk about the birth of Jesus. And we pick up from there. He wrote in verse 80 of chapter 1, until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And it was in the wilderness that John received the divine message from God, that message that ordered him to, in a very straightforward way, uphold a twofold task. One, to awaken the people to their need of true spiritual conversion. And two, to introduce the people to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he does this right out of the gate. So let's read again in verse three. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's preaching is described as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The plain meaning of the statement is that John preached the necessity of baptism as a sign of one's repentance, just as we saw this morning. Now remember, chapter 1, the angel Gabriel had told Zechariah what John's ministry would be when he came. And his words explain what Luke means by repentance in chapter 3, verse 3. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, if you recall, the angel told Zechariah that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, notice the repetition of the word turn. He will turn many of the Israelites to the Lord their God. He will turn the hearts of the fathers and he will, he will turn the disobedient. This is the meaning of repentance. 
a turning of the direction of our lives and the affection of our hearts being turned away from something to something else. So we become oriented on loving God with our whole heart, our whole mind and soul and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. It's loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. This is repentance. We're turning around from where we were headed and heading in the opposite direction. And so... The call here is repent of your sins, turn from your sins, be forgiven by God and come be baptized as a sign of your repentance. This was the call of John in his ministry, a simple message, a very important life changing message. Now, it's very important to remember that by no means does repentance in and of itself make atonement for sin. We are not saved by repentance. It is Christ and His blood alone that atones for the sins of His people. No amount of repentance can make us right with God. We are justified by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. And Luke makes no suggestion whatsoever that if we repent, God will look favorably on us. We don't see that. John's ministry in no way differs from the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us in our natural state are dead in our transgressions and sins, utterly helpless to bring about our own salvation, that we are saved by grace, not by works, and that as his children we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so repentance and faith are a work of God whereby the Holy Spirit of God convicts men of their sins and the Holy Spirit gives the grace to believe the gospel message and then causes them to repent. And the significance of all of this is what we see in regeneration, faith, repentance. We see it signified in the act of baptism. This is what baptism is. This is how it is presented in Scripture. A physical representation of putting the old self to death and bringing a restored new life in Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that the Lord does. It is also a very vivid representation that the end of this life is simply the beginning For the believer in Christ, life continues eternally with Christ. Now, as much as repentance doesn't save us, it is equally as important to recognize that there is a direct correlation between the forgiveness we receive as children of God and the repentance of our heart because of our sins. No amount of repentance will merit Forgiveness. We can spend our entire lives repenting of every sin we know of in our lives and not be saved because God does not owe us anything. But without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. We must know our sins. We must mourn over them. We must forsake them. We must abhor them or else we shall never enter the kingdom of God. 
Repentance contains nothing within itself that makes us deserving of forgiveness. Our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. But the soul of a truly converted person is a soul that mourns over and turns of their sin. You see the difference? In other words, repentance is a clear indicator of a life that has been truly made new, showing the grace of God at work in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance are always found together, hand in hand. Saved souls are repentant souls. And here's why this matters. Because It seems to me that there are many who assume that they are saved but have not repentant spirits at all. If you're not grieved at all by your sin and as a result driven to the cross of Jesus Christ, it's very possible that you may not be saved at all. I think there are a lot of people like this who are far from God and they don't even know it. Listen, if there are sins with which you refuse to repent of, and in fact, if truth be known, you're, you're growing more and more comfortable with them, it is possible that you're not a child of God. I've talked to guys who look me straight in the eyes and tell me, yes, I know it's sinful. I know what God thinks of it. But I don't care. In other words, I love my sin. I don't care what God thinks. He can deal with it. Do you realize how devastating that is? It's damning. Now, I'm not talking about a person who struggles with a specific sin that they keep falling back into but continues to repent and continues to seek freedom from their flesh in that specific area. We all have those areas of sin in our lives that we see creep up from time to time. Again and again, we find ourselves repenting of these certain things most often. I'm talking about a person who refuses to repent at all. A person who doesn't seek to kill sin, but rather to pick it up and hold on to it and coddle it and pet it and care for it and feed it, never wanting to give it up. If that's you, if there's nothing about the sin in your life that drives you to repentance, I pray that concerns you. I pray that we can talk and and pray together, but most importantly, that God would be pleased to breathe life into you so that you would love his law, that you would delight in him as your greatest treasure in life and not the people and things that so easily entice you. Now, if you are a Christian, Scripture and experience will teach all of us that an ongoing spirit of repentance. Repenting not only of our overt sins that we are very aware of, but of unbelief, of wrong attitudes, of self-centeredness, of moral omissions. This is not only a sign of salvation, but it is a necessity for our spiritual health. Are you not growing as a Christian? I'm guessing a big part of it is that you're not repenting of sin in your life. You continue to hold on to it. 
One last thought on verse 3. For the Jews, baptism was only for those who became Jewish and were not born Jewish. So if a Gentile became a Jew, they were baptized. Now, it may not jump out to us right at first, but here's the implication of what what John is saying to all the ethnically Jewish people listening to him preach and calling them to repentance. He's saying, hey, look, I know that you think you have all merited God's favor because you were born Jewish, but here's the deal. You're not children of God at all. Your Jewishness does not save you. That's what Paul meant in Romans when he wrote, not all of Israel is Israel. In other words, in calling Jews to be baptized, John was telling them that they cannot rely on their Jewishness, their ethnicity as a means of salvation. They need a complete heart transplant. They need new hearts. They need new affections toward God. And in the end, it will be even more clear that what they need, like you and I, is Jesus Christ. They need Jesus just like you and I need Jesus. There is no alternative. You cannot just be magically born into a situation in which God grants you salvation apart from the atoning work of Jesus on your behalf, which is exactly what the Jews in John's day thought. And it is exactly what Jews and millions upon millions of other people believe today. Somehow they're good enough or they're the right ethnicity or they do the right religious practices and they're good to go. God will simply allow them to continue to live on a life unto themselves, finding their joy in all that the world has to offer. And in the end, he's just going to deal with it. No problem. That's a lot of people we know, isn't it? They're good people. And in the end, God will allow them into his eternal presence because they say so. They've determined their eternal security by their standard, regardless of what the scriptures say. That is the mentality that we see in the Jewish people. That is the mentality of many of our neighbors. They were not safe because they were Jewish. And you and I are not safe because we're supposedly good people. We cannot depend on ourselves or a righteousness that we assume that we have. We must rest on the sufficient, complete work of Christ and His righteousness credited to us as our own. That's all we've got. So now everything John was saying ran completely contrary to all that the Jews had assumed about themselves as a people. Don't you think that hearing what John is saying was mildly offensive to them? Well, that's nothing. Just wait until we see what he actually says. But here's the implication of John's point, if you're not thinking of it. The way of salvation is open not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles to repent and be forgiven. If Jewishness does not save, then Gentilishness does not necessarily condemn. The issue is repentance toward God. Let's look. Verse 4. 
As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, if we compare Luke's citation here of Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 with the citations of Matthew and Mark in their gospel accounts, we see a specific point that Luke wants to make because he includes the entire passage in his gospel account, while Matthew and Mark only write the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Why did Luke go on to quote verses 4 and 5? It seems that the reason was to point out that the repentance that John was beginning to preach and the salvation that Jesus is bringing is for all flesh, every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, not just Israel. The mountains are lowered, the crooked ways are made straight, the rough ways are smooth so that all flesh, all people might see and have access to salvation. So again, Jewishness is no guarantee of salvation and, praise God, non-Jewishness is no hindrance from salvation. What matters is repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's what Isaiah is referring to and why three of the gospel writers reference it in this prophetic account. It refers to the common custom that when an important person, maybe a government authority, a ruler, a uh, a dignitary, was going to come into the city for a visit, all of the citizens would come together and they would work to make the roads straight and smooth and, and wide, so that whoever it was that they were welcoming could come into the city in comfort and in pomp and circumstance. But what Isaiah is referring to, and and Luke makes it even more obvious in this context, is that the highway is not simply a grand entrance into a city. It's a great pathway through a mountainous wilderness. He saw mountains flattened, valleys filled Roads that were bumpy were, were smoothed out so that a broad super highway could be made for the Messiah King to come in. So here's the point. John was building a grand highway called repentance. Repentance removes all the obstacles. It flattens the mountains of sin in our lives. It fills the depth of the valley of death and destruction in our lives the pit that holds all the vile, evil, wicked deeds of our flesh. The mountains are crushed. The valleys are filled so that Christ is given full access. No hindrances. And when God's people live repentant lives, it not only benefits us, but it opens the way so that the world would know him as well, doesn't it? Note again the final line of Isaiah's words, and all flesh, all mankind shall see the salvation of God. If God's people would repent of individual and corporate sins, whatever they are, a highway would be forged to a lost world and many would repent and come to Christ. 
I believe that is very true. That's why we do prayers of repentance every week as we come together. This was a hallmark of John's ministry and his preaching. Vast multitudes of people came to the Jordan Valley for baptism, and he called them to repentance. Now, obviously, John is very pleased that so many were repentant and so many were being baptized. But what we see in verse 7 is that he was still very concerned. He sensed that there were some in their midst that were very insincere. Some of them were even very hardened hypocrites. Some simply came to see the show. What's going on here? Some were religious There were groupies who just wanted to be a part of the scene. Some were more calculated. They thought maybe if they underwent baptism, their friends would think well of them, maybe better business contacts. And if you spend much time sharing the gospel with people in our culture, you will be in this place. Someone will hear what you're saying. They'll nod in agreement and they'll say, Amen. And all along, you just want to grab them and shake them and say, I'm talking to you. I'm talking about you. This isn't about everyone else. This isn't about whatever else you're thinking about. This is you. Perhaps we need that reminder, don't we? How often do we hear sermons, we read good books, and we think, what? So-and-so really needs to hear this. I really want them to read this. I really want them to think about this. Instead of thinking, my heart, my sin. It's no different from where many of those around John were in his day. In our day, it's people who attend churches and say that they have received Christ They've said some kind of prayer of repentance and they're baptized for similarly insufficient reasons. Now, make sure you don't assume what I'm not saying here. Repentance, professions of faith, church attendance, good standing in conservative Bible-believing churches are good things, but they do not necessarily prove all that much. I can tell you I can't tell you how many people I've asked to tell me about their conversion to Christ. And they say something like this. Well, I'm a member at ABC Baptist Church. Or I was baptized when I was 12. Or my grandfather was a pastor. Or my dad is a deacon. Or even, well, I'm a pastor at XYZ Church. I asked you to tell me about your conversion. And what's implied is that these things, if these things are true, then surely we must be saved, right? It's exactly as the Jews believed. John knew it in his own situation, and so very wisely he became very direct in what he was saying. I think he would probably get a lot of emails today if he stood in an American church pulpit. Not happy, encouraging ones either. He was very very abrasive because he wanted to drill into the hearts of the people around him that what they assumed they were saved by meant very little at all. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's three implications here. First, he tells them, you are a brood of vipers. Now, what does it mean to Jews who are schooled in the Old Testament to be called a viper? Remember Genesis 3? Satan is pictured as a serpent or a viper. And God says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. So when anybody said that they were the seed or the brood of a viper, it was the same thing as saying, you are all children of Satan. Very strong words. It's the same type of thing Jesus said in John eight forty three and 45 to another crowd. He said, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So John's first word is an indictment to his listeners. You are people in Satan's grip. You are of your father, the devil. You are his children by your nature. Secondly, implied in this is that the wrath of God is coming. John is referring to a group of snakes that are are trying to flee when a brush fire comes. In other words, they want to escape God's judgment, but they have no intention, they have no desire of seeing their evil nature transformed. He is calling them out as the hypocrites that they are. And thirdly, there's also grace implied in all of this. Think of this positively. What is John implying He's pointing to the fact that forgiveness is available. There is an available escape from the wrath to come. It's what the Jews wanted, but they weren't able to accept what it took in order to receive it. But he in no way negates the fact that it is there. Forgiveness is there. It is available. And you need not fall under the wrath of Almighty God. So after making this new group of best friends, John continues, verses 8 and 9. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The command is to repent and to bear fruit. And this goes right to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? John's warning is very similar to that of Jesus's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 16 through 21. Jesus said, you will recognize false professors by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. True faith and repentance will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then the genuine overflow of faith and repentance is the fruit of action. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's why James writes, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The Jews were resting all of their hope upon the merits of godly Abraham, who they were ethnic descendants of. And John, in essence, tells them, you are fools. You do not get it, do you? And he does so with the very frightening words of verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is the implication? The fruits of our lives bear testimony to whether or not we are truly regenerate in Christ. If we have true faith and true belief, and if there is no fruit, there's a very good indication that we are not children of God, but children of Satan. And in the end, we will be condemned and thrown into the eternal lake of fire. It's frightening. The Jews are a great lesson book to all of us who tend to rely on anything for our salvation other than the mercy of God. What these people had forgotten is the very same thing that anyone forgets when attempting to obligate God by any of their human distinctives or efforts. They forget the freedom that God has to have mercy on whom he will. They forget the power of God who can always find a way to rebuke human self-reliance while keeping his promises. But I know I'm saved. I said a prayer. That's not what God has revealed in his word. That is not the way that we back God into a corner and get him to submit to us. Our evangelical corners are very similar to Jewish corners. So John's rebuke is just as pertinent to us. Don't trust in the kind of tree that you are. If there is no fruit that accords with repentance, you will be destroyed. It doesn't matter if the tree is Jewish. It doesn't matter if it's Gentile. What matters is repentance and faith and the fruit that is born from those. Verse 10, and the crowd asked him, what then shall we do? What a wonderful question. I pray that when we point to the sins of men, when we reveal to them their lawlessness and inability to live up to God's standard of righteousness, that they would cry out, What must I do to be saved? If this is true, if this really is who I am, if I am who the Bible says I am, I am hopeless. I have no hope. What must I do? What a wonderful opportunity to say there's hope. There is an escape from the wrath to come. Repent of your sin. Trust in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ on your behalf.
many of those who heard John realized that they had not truly repented of their sins. They saw very clearly that they did not have authentic spirit-derived fruit in their lives. They saw that their thoughts and their desires and their actions had no roots in the faith that they professed with their lips. And it was from this conviction that they asked, what then shall we do? How? How do we flee the wrath to come? And lastly, John answers them, verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So John identifies some specific fruits of true conversion. He gives example of the fruits of repentance. It is by faith and repentance that God brings about true spiritual conversion, causes us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, of course, we understand that apart from Christ and apart from the work of the Spirit, the exercise of this kind of love for God and for our neighbors is impossible. John will turn in the following verses to this great truth. It is Christ who brings new life, not the deeds of men. It is Christ who redeems, not our own works. It is Christ who is our salvation. And it is this important message of repentance and faith in Christ alone that we need to hear again and again and again, isn't it? We need constantly to be reminded that God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is as The great hymn says, our only hope and stay. Jesus is our only hope. If you are in Christ, you will sin. You will sin today. But thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the love of our Father in Christ, that we have a way of forgiveness, that as we repent... He cleanses us. He casts our sin as far away as the east is from the west. And he causes us to have a greater desire to walk in obedience to him. This morning we give thanks to God for his glorious gospel. We give thanks to God for our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so incredibly grateful for your word. We're grateful that in your word you remind us of the great importance of repentance. For the believer, a daily life of repentance, recognizing before you that we still are tied to our nature of sin. And yet we have a great desire that we once did not have. And that is a desire to honor you, to obey you, to bring glory to you in our lives. And so in our repentance, Lord, I pray that for your people, it also produces thankfulness. 
thankfulness that while we sin and while we have much reason to repent, that you hear us, that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that you give us a greater desire for you, and that in the end we will not be condemned by those very sins we repent of, because Christ has already been bruised on our behalf. Thank you. Lord, amaze us with that truth. Amaze us with that reality every time we speak of it, every time we think of it. I pray for those this morning who have heard from your word, who are false professors, those who assume a life of godliness and yet live contrary to the command of your word. I pray, God, that you bring them to a place of great conviction that you cause them to repent of their sin and to truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Breathe new life into their souls that they can walk in obedience and faith. And Lord, give us all a greater desire to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, to religious expressions of works, but rather to be molded as true believers in Christ who faithfully walk with Christ and who bear fruit of healthy trees that are planted deep in your word. Help us to be people of your word, to be people of faith and obedience and trust in our one and only hope in this world who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for the joy of our salvation in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.